morning. Okay. Okay, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 13 to 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when we come to the Gospels, all four of them, one thing that we see fairly early on in all the Gospels, that the Gospel writers try to make a connection between Jesus and the Old Testament. So we think, for instance, of the Gospel of Mark, how it starts with a quotation from the Old Testament very early on. John, in his prologue, talks about Jesus being the Word. And that's a reference, most likely, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In Luke, there's the mention of how Mary and Zechariah, after the angel announces to them about the coming deliverance, how they associate the coming deliverance with promises from the Old Testament. And Matthew does the same thing. He associates the coming of Jesus early on in his gospel with the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. But this morning, I would argue that while Matthew also does this, he does it in a more prominent way than the other gospel writers by starting his gospel with a genealogy. And so that was a way to connect whatever he was about to say with the Old Testament. And then as we keep reading the gospel of Matthew after the genealogy, then he goes straight into the birth or infancy narrative concerning Jesus. And what we see in the way Matthew frames the infancy or birth narrative of Jesus is that he emphasizes Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And one of the main ways in which he does that is by using quotations from the Old Testament. And so Matthew uses these quotations to drive forward the point he's seeking to make about Jesus. So when you read the infancy narrative in Matthew, first of all, we come to the first quotation that the virgin shall conceive. 
And Matthew is quoting the Old Testament there to make the point that Jesus is God's miraculous provision for God's people. Jesus in his coming is the fulfillment of God's promise to act on his behalf, on behalf of his people in a miraculous way. The second quotation talks about how Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And there he calls the person who will be born in Bethlehem the ruler coming from ancient days. The second quotation makes the case that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And then as we follow Matthew's narrative, we read about how King Herod asked the wise men to reveal to him the location of the child. And then we read about how God wants the wise men not to return to Herod. And our text that we read this morning picks up at this point that the wise men have departed to their country without going back to Herod. Now, in keeping with Matthew's method of using the Old Testament quotation to drive forward his point about Jesus, I think that it's fitting this morning that I look at this text by first of all considering the quotation found in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15. So my point is this, if indeed Matthew is using these quotations to drive forward the point he's making about Jesus, it's essential for us to understand how he's using this quotation in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15. So in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15, in the second part of the verse, we read, and they remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. The point of this quotation is to assert that Jesus identifies with his people. And now the question that follows is how does this Old Testament quotation make this point? Now this is a quotation from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And when we read the text of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, we see there that clearly it's about the Exodus, about how God called Israel out of Egypt. And then the text says, out of Egypt I called my son. It's a clear reference to the Exodus. And this has led some interpreters then to really struggle with this text. And they ask themselves the question, does Matthew here distort the sense of the scriptures when he applies this quotation to Jesus? This has led some people to say, we should never quote the Old Testament the way that the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. But I would disagree with this statement. I think Matthew is not misquoting the Old Testament here. So when we consider the issue of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, we need to understand something that's very important. 
that the New Testament authors did not quote the Old Testament only as direct fulfillment. Certainly, that was one way of quoting the Old Testament as a direct fulfillment. But that was not the only way they used the Old Testament. Sometimes, they would quote a key verse to express a pattern or general teaching found in the Old Testament. And so in quoting that key verse, they would expect the hearers or expect the readers to know the general teaching found in the Old Testament and then to bring the general teaching of the Old Testament to bear upon the text. So Matthew, I would contend, knew the scriptures very well. And he knew that this quotation was about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. So when he quotes this verse, he's pointing to a general Old Testament teaching that what God would do for his people, he would also do for the Messiah. In this way, he sets forth the idea that the Messiah would identify with the people and become its representative. So here, I would like to point you to two sets of passages from the Old Testament where we see this idea that what God does for the people, he promises them to do for the Messiah. So first of all, I would like to see Numbers chapter 23, verse 18 to 24, compared with Numbers 24, verse 7 to 9. So great, it's already on the screen. And so I will read for you Numbers 23, 18 to 24. And then I will read Numbers 24, 7 to 9. And as I read this text, I would ask for you to listen and pay attention to the table you have on the screen and see the points of similarities between the nation and the Messiah. So Numbers, first of all, 23, verse 18 to 24. In Numbers 23, these are the prophecies of Balaam about Israel. And so in Numbers 23, verse 18, and Balaam took up his discourse and said, rise Balak and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I receive a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Okay, and now I read for you Numbers 24, verse 7 to 9. And what's important for us to distinguish between these two texts is that while Numbers 23 is talking about Israel, Numbers 24 talks about the king of Israel. So in Numbers 24, I'll start reading. 
as of verse 7. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king, speaking of Israel, the king of Israel, shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Bless all those who bless you, and cursed all those who curse you. So when we put these two texts, one is about the nation of Israel, one is about the king of Israel. And let me remind you, at this point of the history of Israel, Israel has no king yet. And so Balaam can look back on Israel and see how God brought them out of Egypt. But then in looking at Israel's king, he's evidently looking forward about the king who will be the archetypical king. In other words, he's speaking about the Messiah. So the points of comparison between the two, those two texts, God brings Israel out of Egypt. God's bring the, God brings the king out of Egypt. God is for Israel like the horns of the wild ox. God is for him like the horns of the wild ox. And then Israel is a, is a, a lioness and a lion. And then in Numbers 24 verse 9, the king is like a lion and like a lioness. So what is true of the nation will also be true of its future king. The idea then that this prophecy is communicating is that Israel's king, Israel's Messiah, would be a representative of the nation. And then I would like to point your attention to another text of the Old Testament. Oops. So in Isaiah 41, if you have time, I would really like to encourage you when you get home, take some time over this Christmas period and read all of Isaiah 40 to 56. Read it in one sitting if you can. But one of the things you will notice when you read these chapters of Isaiah is that at some point God calls the nation my servant. So you read in Isaiah 41.8, Isaiah 42.18, that in speaking about the Lord's servant, the text is clearly referring to the nation of Israel. Because in Isaiah 42.18, the Lord says, who is blind as my servant? Who is deaf, deaf as my servant? Speaking clearly about the nation of of Israel. But then in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3 and 6, he picks up again the language of the servant of the Lord. But then as we read the text, it becomes clear fairly quickly that he's not speaking about the nation anymore, but he's speaking about a person who is a representative of the nation. So in Isaiah 49, verses 3 to 6, And he said to me, you are my servant. 
Israel in whom I will be glorified. But now listen to what the servant says. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, is it to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What I want you to notice in this text for the purposes of interpreting Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 is that the servant of the Lord there is distinguished from the nation. He is called Israel. He's called by the name of the nations, of the nation. But then what does he do? The Lord says to him, you are my servant whom I will use to bring Jacob back to me. So he's not speaking about the nation there. He's speaking about a person who is a representative of the nation. So this is a general teaching found in the Old Testament that Israel's Messiah would be a representative of the nation. So if we are careful in our reading of the Old Testament, we see that there is this general teaching that the Messiah would represent the nation. Matthew understood this. Matthew understood that the Old Testament set the nation of Israel as a type of the Messiah. And he brings this idea to bear in this text. So in this way, the Messiah is identified with the people and becomes its representative. So this is the point of Matthew when he quotes Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 and applies it to Christ. He wants to make the point that the Messiah is the representative of the nation. So if we follow the progression then of Matthew's teaching through the use of Old Testament quotations, Matthew makes the point that the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to act on behalf of his people in a miraculous way. Then, secondly, the birth of Jesus was none other than the birth of Israel's Messiah. And then third, through this quotation of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, Jesus in his incarnation identifies with the people of God as its representative. So this is Matthew's progression of thought through the use of these Old Testament quotations. And then if... We accept that this is Matthew's point. Then I will suggest that the text makes two points about Jesus' identification with the people of God as its representative. And so, first of all, Jesus identifies with the people of God in its affliction. So in verse 13, 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. By his incarnation, Jesus identifies with humanity on several levels. But Matthew lays special emphasis on the fact that he identifies with the suffering of his people at the hands of evil men. God had to intervene to keep Israel's Messiah safe from the hands of an evil man. Because of the evil of Herod, Jesus had to leave his home and leave out his childhood as a stranger in a foreign land. And the text makes us understand this truth that because of his incarnation, Jesus knows what it means to suffer at the hands of men. And this is something that we may face also. Whether it's bullies at school, being made fun of at school or in the marketplace, a difficult co-worker, a difficult boss, people who do not honor your desire to live a life of integrity, difficult neighbors, a difficult or ungodly spouse, unsupportive parents, whatever it may be, whatever suffering we may face, we may experience at the hands of ungodly people, Jesus can identify with these things. So as we face such circumstances in our lives, we are called to remember that Jesus understands from experience exactly how such opposition feels. And then, because he identifies with us in his incarnation, we are called to emulate his example of faithfulness. But then secondly, in our text, Jesus not only identifies with his people in his suffering, but the text makes the point that he also identifies with the people of God in its deliverance. In verse 14, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and there remained until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so the text here makes the point that God intervened to protect Jesus from Herod. And then once Herod died, he was able to come back to the territory of Israel. What I suggest here is that Jesus' deliverance from Herod anticipates the greater victory that God would grant Jesus over all of his enemies. Just as God delivered Israel from its enemies in the Exodus, the scripture anticipates the day when God would deliver Jesus from all of his enemies. By his death and resurrection, 
Jesus defeated all his enemies such that he could say at the end of the gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. God granted Jesus victory over death, over the prince of this world, and over the world. I'll just read a few texts of scriptures to you. John 12, 31, right before going to the cross, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus defeated death. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus identifies with the people of God in its deliverance. Now, this identification of Jesus with his people is good news for us because it also means that since Jesus identified with us in his incarnation, then we will also share in Jesus' victory. Our identification with Jesus means that we also are children of God, that we also will be with Jesus, that we will have victory over, over death, over Satan and the world, and that we will reign with him forever and ever. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, out of Egypt I call my son. What's the point of that quotation? Is to make, to set forth the teaching that Jesus identifies with his people. He identifies with his people in its suffering. He identifies with his people in its deliverance. And I will go one step further and say that Jesus himself is the agent of that deliverance. So, as I conclude my sermon this morning, I want to encourage you to look at Christ. As we start this season of the year when we think about the incarnation, I want to direct your attention about how in his incarnation, Jesus identifies with humanity. So uh, let me say three things in conclusion. Jesus' identification with his people practically for us implies that we need to live our lives according to the example that we have in Jesus. He identified with us by taking on humanity and then he lived out his humanity perfectly. He's the last Adam. And we who place our trust in him, we are reborn. Not according to the image of Adam who fell into sin, but we are reborn according to the image of 
this new humanity, this perfect humanity that we have in Christ. So he ought to be our example in all things. Our goal should be to be more and more like Christ with every day that goes by. So we're going to celebrate Christmas. Then we're going to have, we'll, we'll have celebrations that come with the new year. And many of you will make a resolution. This is the year I'm going to run a marathon. We've been there, right? But as a Christian, our resolution should be with every day that goes by in the coming new year. I will strive to be more and more like Christ. Even in the minutiae of life, we need to constantly be asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? And that's a very question, good question to ask. What would Jesus do? But the answer is not difficult if we actually know what Jesus did. And to know that, it is imperative that we know the scriptures, that we read the scriptures to learn more about Jesus' character, to learn more about his person and his work, so that in turn, we can emulate him in our day-to-day -day life. Is that your goal? To be more and more like Christ with every day that goes by. Secondly, Jesus' identification with his people also means for us that we have in Jesus a mediator who truly understands our emotions and our struggles. Now, when I've heard this idea, a very scriptural idea in the past, at times I've been like, well, that's so theoretical. How does that help me? But this truth that Jesus is our mediator who truly understands our emotions and our struggles should push us to have faith in Jesus. So our greatest resource in times of hardship and difficulty is the intercession of Jesus on our behalf. So we need to show our faith in Jesus by making sure that we always look to him first. Sadly, when we face difficulties, our first resort at times is doctors, financial institutions, family members, or the police. And I understand that God uses means, and he uses these things to deliver and to provide for his people. But we should not look to these things first and foremost. In times of need, we need to call out to our Lord first and foremost. He lives evermore to make a perfect intercession on our behalf. So if we find ourselves in some kind of difficult circumstance, let's exert our faith. Let's believe this truth 
that Jesus truly understands what we are going through. And he's praying for us. And that his prayers on our behalf is effective. And then we show our faith by calling to him first and foremost. And then last point I want to make about Jesus' identification with us is that it encourages us to persevere regardless of what we might be facing. Jesus will be victorious over all his enemies. And those who are found in him will share in that victory and will reign with him forever and ever. And the fact that we will share in Christ's victory, the promise that we will share in that victory encourages us to never give up. If we are tasked with something that's impossible, it's easy to give up. If somebody were to tell me, Pascal, if you can jump and touch the ceiling, I'll pay off your mortgage. I'm not going to be trying to do that, will I? Because I know it's an impossible task. But Jesus' victory and the fact that we will share in that victory tells us that we are not faced with an impossible task. In, in fact, we are told that we will have the victory. Then our responsibility is simply to finish the race. If I'm participating in a race and I have this promise. All you have to do is finish and if you finish, you win. We have a wonderful encouragement to never give up then, don't we? All we have to do is finish the race and if we finish it, we win. And Jesus tells us, because of his identification with his people, we have the victory. All we have to do is simply finish the race. Never give up. To continuously persevere. To be faithful to Jesus regardless of the cost. Because we know that we will share in Jesus' victory. His blessedness and his glorious reign. So my encouragement then to you is never give up. Perhaps you might be going through circumstances that are difficult and you ask yourself the question, is it worth it to continue with this struggle against sin, to resist? And Jesus says, you will have the victory. Simply never give up. So let me encourage you, be faithful to Christ. In times of difficulty, understand that your greatest resource to persevere and be faithful is found in Christ's intercession on his behalf. So call out to him and then live a life according to example, the example that we have in Christ. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you that you sent your son to take on our humanity, to be obedient and to death, even the death on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin as our substitute. So that by his death and resurrection, through faith we can have new life in him, the forgiveness of sins and a new status as your child. And Father, I ask you to help us to always look to Christ in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves, that our first resort will be to run to him. And that, that we will be faithful to live according to exam the example that we've had in him. Father, use us for your glory. And I pray that our desire with each day that passes will be that Christ will increase and that we ourselves will decrease. I ask you these things for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Let's stand together.